50-50 by happened but I also feel like it happened a month ago I don't know I'm like stuck in this weird limbo of like everything's moving fast and then like really slow (laughs) I know it seems strange that we are already into July and obviously this podcast is a little bit delayed because of the holiday but we definitely wanted to bring you um, a July episode so sorry for the tardiness but we are here now to talk about wonderful things in entertainment yes oh my gosh so I mean I guess I do want to kind of start off with this because we're still, like, on on the high of the U.S. team women's uh, world Yay. soccer <laughs> win, which was fantastic. Number one in the league, again, winning again. And I was uh, watching the parade. I did not go. It was a hot day, and I had just moved. So I was watching the parade uh, on my TV and just, cut, like, just, it was so great, you know, like it was just such a inspiring, fascinating, happy time. I was so happy that day. It was, it was a great stuff. And, you know, like I felt invigorated, even though, and it was funny because they were showing clips of them beating a Chile women's league. And I, my family's from Chile, so we watch soccer all the time and soccer is a big thing. And I remember seeing that, that um, game and I was like, oh man, of course. Like Chilean <laughs> men are, are top in the league. Chilean women have to like still kind of like, try to find their, find their ways to get there. But, you know, nothing, no one's beating the U.S. women's uh, soccer. It's, like, amazing. Yeah, it's great. And after everything that they've been through to really just make sure that they're getting what they deserve. And yeah. um, even if they didn't win, they still deserve to play on grass instead of astroturf and to get equal pay Mm -hmm. and to make sure that, you know, they're being recognized for what they're doing. And just the fact that they did win, I think, is, as you said, so inspiring. And also, it's just continuing to feed that conversation of equality. And, um, you know, with everything that's been happening the past couple of years for for women, I think it's just an amazing, it's like icing on the cake. (laughs) It really is, but like, and I and I hope that there are really people fighting for them in the fact that they don't just deserve equal pay; they deserve more than what the men are getting. The men haven't been in the top ten of their league in I don't remember when they were in the top ten. So you know, these women they haven't just been on the top ten; they've been on the top. They're number one in the world. So mm-hmm. like, they really do deserve much more than the right. men. They know. deserve so, the, yeah. the marketing behind them. They deserve PR push behind them. They deserve to travel as well as the men, to have equal schedules. You know, as I just said, I think they're finally changing, and now yeah. um, 
not having them plan AstroTurf, which could cause a lot of injuries, and yeah. they've been making small adjustments, and I think that's a great movement. Um, but it'll be interesting after the fact that they've just won. It, it, it would be hard for the soccer federation to really turn around and to continue to fight with them. I mean, how can they really say, no, yeah. we're, we're not going to, you know, give you better bonuses and we're not going to be able to give you, you know, better opportunities for pay, even though you just won the World Cup again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's even just a shame that it has to, people. right, that it, that it has to continue to be this battle. Um, but if you don't continue to fight for yourself and be your own advocate, then things aren't going to change. And I think it's wonderful that they are carrying the torch, not only for them, but for, you know, so many millions of women who are in comparable situations, no matter what field they're in. You know, it could be the same, uh, you know, if they're a janitor or if they're a teacher or if, you know, they're a marketing executive. Um, Yeah. And, you know, that's the types of conversations that we have to continue to have, um, no matter what industry. Right. And also, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't um, men in whatever sport league that they're in, if they're an, a, an award-winning top 10, you know, winning um, uh, team, don't, don't they get paid more than the other teams? And, like, it's all based on what you win, right? Like, you get paid more right. based on your winning. You would winning. think so. But I think that what gets confusing, and, and I'm not – as versed into soccer as I am with other sports because I'm more of a football fan, but just having paid some attention to what's going on here, I think some of the, the problems is is that there's a lot of men soccer leagues so that men who are mm-hmm. in, say, the, the men's, you know, U.S. team. They have mm-hmm. more of an opportunity to go and play on other teams during the year um, and get a salary from that, whereas the women's, their league options aren't as much. So when it comes down to, like, winning the World Cup and going into bigger games and stuff like this, their salary isn't comparable, but they also don't have the opportunities that the men do to make money throughout the year and on a competitive basis, like in these different leagues. And because of that, that's why they're saying, well, you know, so we, we need, you need to hold this up when we do this. And that's, I think what there's so much confusion and for, you know, men in pro football leagues, you know, there is not a women's baseball team to be comparable to, or a women's football team. You know, Mm -hmm. there is a women's basketball team, but I have no, I would imagine they fight the same things, but they're not on a level as the world cup, you know? So it's, it's a really interesting topic and a confusing topic, but an important one. And obviously they've shown that they deserve to get, you know, what they're asking for. Yeah. Now, if there was a female football team, would you join? Like, is that, like, I know you're a big football God, if I was, (laughs) if I was 10 or 15 years younger, maybe, um, I would love that. But the age I'm at now, I can hardly run around the block. Never mind (laughs) running down a football field. (laughs) I quit. My friends and I used to play in a uh, touch football league, and I finally gave gave that up because I was on teams, you know, playing against men and women who were in their 20s, and I I just couldn't keep up anymore. I had to admit that, you know, I I could not compete at that level. 
Aw. Well, you gave it the good try. That's awesome. I don't right. I know it, that I wouldn't be able to. You know, maybe I could be a kicker because that doesn't yeah. take as much. Yeah. Although I there is a skill that. involved. I don't want kickers to come back to me. I understand what it's like. I'm just saying you don't have to run around as much as right. <laughs> as a kicker be, as you do if you're on the offensive line. I could be a cheerleader, except I would be holding up a sign saying, don't you dare ask me to wear a cheerleader outfit. And I would be wearing <laughs> <laughs> and I would say, Well, you could start a whole new movement, an anti-cheerleader <laughs> outfit movement. And I would be like, just cheer because you like the team, okay? Don't cheer because we're wearing what we're wearing. <laughs> I, I think that works. <laughs> okay. I'm not even getting to it, but I was watching, um, what's so funny, I was watching that show on Netflix with David Letterman that my next guest, you know, when he talked oh, yeah. to, yeah. So he was talking to Tiffany Haddish and one of the things that she was saying, her story is very interesting. I liked that episode a lot. And one, one of the stories that she was saying was that when she was in high school, um, she would be, or maybe she was like, yeah, it was high school. It was high school. She was um, like asking to be a, a mascot. And so she, because she was like a, she was like an entertainer. So the, as mm-hmm. being a mascot, she didn't wear the mask or the head. She just took the regular outfit with her regular head. Like she didn't wear a cut or like a, a, anything over her head so you could see her face. And she was entertaining people by, you know, talking to them and getting them, the crowd going. And she was saying at first nobody was tending the shows because it was, you know, the, the team they were, that was uh, her team, they were losing all the time. Nobody would show up or whatever. And so she would start giving out candy to people and start entertaining. And there was more and more people coming because of her. And mm. she wound up like going and leaving to go get someplace else that was being, she could get paid for entertaining. And the dean called her in and was like, what is it going to take for me to get you to come back because nobody's coming to our shows anymore? And so she was like, all right. So she demanded pay. And it was like pretty, pretty awesome. Like, you know, you, you know the, the movement of entertaining people and, and just, I don't know, I just, Went right into well, it's that. So, it's so smart that it. they saw the value in that, and they saw the value in her. And instead of yeah. trying to replicate that, you know, they went to her and said, "Okay, we need you. What's it going to take?" And yeah. you know that that's and the, the fact that you know she made a kind of job for herself is terrific. Yeah, I mean, her story is pretty phenomenal. I know she has, she's got a book out and never read it, but they did uh, go into elaborate of it. And if you ever get a chance to watch that episode, it's pretty interesting. But, um, but yeah, it kind of, all of this conversation all ties into um, a, a recent event that NYWIFT had, which was the, the inaugural 2019 NYWIFT Summit, which discussed inclusion and equality and safety um, and a lot of conversations with a lot of panels and, um, you know, addressing the issues of gender and pay gap, addressing diversity and inclusion and addressing sexual harassment. So I know it was something that is very important that they've been talking and working on for a long time. And Catherine O'Kane yeah, is on, it, um, yeah. It was, on our it was board a great and event. She, and yeah. would I remember from it and just the feeling there is just the fact that it people could be so open and it was such an open safe space to talk about any type of issue and um, that is very rare when you go to a lot of these events or you're just networking in general Um, you never know who you're talking to and you never know what 
to say and if you're going to offend someone or if you're going to mention something that you maybe you have a problem with sexual harassment and that person could be at a network that maybe you want to bring a project to. But right. this summit was just brought all of these wonderful people together to talk about things and to ask questions that maybe you wouldn't ask in any other type of space or platform. And I hope it's something that, you know, Nineworth continues with because it's, you know, I think everybody found it very, very valuable. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I know that that, um, they want to do this, uh, I think, every year from just discussions that I had been hearing. And um, our fellow board member, Catherine O'Kane, she had really put this together and really put a lot of time and effort into making this happen. And it was such a nice, big um, conversation, a day-long event um, that, as you said, was a great safe space. So I do feel like this is just one of many to come. And um, and I'm glad that they are having this, you know, because uh, we... You know, I don't know if you remember, but a couple of years ago we had um, taken partake in NILIFT organization was partaking in a survey with USA Today that they had disclosed the amount of women that had, um, you know, been sexually harassed at work, have had uh, an assault or, you know, harassment in general, and um, I think it was 94% of women had said yes. The survey was pretty incredible. So, um, yeah, sadly, I'm not surprised by that statistic. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's crazy. And I remember I, I anonymously partook in that in that conversation, and I explained my situation, and they they included it in the story of USA Today. It was pretty crazy, but it's and I, I it was interesting to actually see my words in print. You know, it was something I mm-hmm. carried with me and I never really talked about and I didn't really think about it too much, but like there was a pay gap situation, there was sexual harassment situation, there was my issue with everything across the board. And um, you know, I you know, I was uh, I was discriminated against because of uh being a young Latina and I was sexually harassed because I was young and naive and I was not paid for what I was doing because I was young and naive and Latina. So it was very um my story was sort of like I just carried with it. I didn't really speak about it, but I kept moving forward in the direction of I'm not letting that happen to me again. I, I was stupid enough to let that happen. Now that won't ever happen. And I, I, this is how, well, you know, my, and I think we also have to change our reflection because the fact that you just said to yourself that I was stupid enough to let that happen makes it seem as if it was your fault. And it yeah, wasn't your fault. No, I and I think right. a lot of women just automatically go to that and think that way because I think, you know, I, I've had situations like that, too, and looking back, um, you know, in my 20s and in my 30s, especially I started off working in politics. So there was definitely a lot of that going around. But, yeah. And I didn't stand up at certain times for myself, but I learned from that, and as you just said, moved on. And, and you didn't let that happen again. But we as women have to make sure that we don't think like, oh, it was my fault. I was stupid enough to let that happen. Well, you know what? In the early days when we were coming up, nobody taught us to do this. We were taught right. to keep our mouth shut, be happy with what we are. Men are going to be men. And if we don't go along with this, we're going to get fired. Well, nowadays, right. Right. there's a little bit more of a safety net there where people can speak up. And if I face the things that I faced in my 20s now – hell yes, I'm going to HR, hell yes, I'm talking to people. Mm-hmm. Because now, thankfully, there's an environment to do that, whereas in our time, there really wasn't. And, right. But that wasn't our fault. 
No, no, you're right. And there, there was no outlet for us. If there were things happening, the conversations were happening, if these summits were available to us um, in, a, in a broader space, I would have known better. I would have seen it coming. I would have known what to do to not exactly. let that happen. So, so I'm glad that these things are happening now because, you know, we've gone through it. So now let's not keep that going. The next generation shouldn't have to deal with it and we should all be protecting each other. Amen, sister. Yeah, amen. I'm glad that, that, that they're doing this. So I'm excited. And for anyone who didn't get a chance to go or had heard about it or wants to know more, check out the website on nyrift.org. Um, check out our social media. There are photos on our Facebook page. There's a page on the website with information about it. Um, and there's bios from speakers. There's a lot more info. But, um, but keep, keep an eye out for your emails because um, there definitely will be more of these to come. Sure. But yeah. So, oh, and then at some point or another, we're going to have an interview with Catherine O'Kane, our board member, to really discuss that summit in depth and give you a little bit more. So, stay yeah, tuned. Definitely for something to look forward to. That. Yeah. So, great. In the meantime, so now yeah, so should we uh, what, what, line up our interviews happening for this month? Yeah. Let's do it. Um, so we have an interview. Uh, you had an interview. Why don't you tell us about yours? Yes, I have an interview. I don't want to say too much because um, the I do a nice little introduction of who I'm who I'm speaking with that will cover a lot of this. But it's a documentary filmmaker called Joan Crone, who actually started filmmaking um, in her late 80s, and I think currently is 91 and is working on her second documentary. Um, so she has a, a fascinating career, and the um, film that we talk about in, uh, mostly in the interview is Take My Nose, Please, which is about female comedians and plastic surgery. And I wow. won't say too much more because I'll let the interview speak for itself, but she was a, a wonderful woman and a really, really interesting um, conversation. So I hope everybody enjoys that. Yeah, so let's get right into that interview, and um, and then uh, we'll come right back. So check it out. Here we go. Hi, everyone. This is Janine, and I'm privileged to bring you an interview with fellow NYWIFT member Joan Crone. Joan is a prize-winning journalist and filmmaker, and at 91, a master of reinvention. In the early days of her career, she designed costumes at NBC TV back when television was live and black and white. In the 60s, she was founder and eventually chair of Philadelphia Wise Arts Council, producing historic and avant-garde cultural events, including a limited edition art objects by Roy Lichtenstein, Andy Warhol, and Robert Indiana. After a personal tragedy at age 41 and with no training in journalism, she started writing, covering design on staff at New York and New York Times and fashion at the Wall Street Journal. She was a consultant to the Washington Star, editor-in-chief of Avenue, and for 25 years, contributing editor-at-large of Condé Nast Allure, where she produced prize-winning coverage on plastic surgery. She is the sole author of four books, one of which, called high-tech, literally popularized that term. But we're not done yet. At 89, Joan made her directorial debut, winning audience awards with her documentary, Take My Nose, Please, about female comedians and plastic surgery. It's available now online 
and On Demand at Hulu and Amazon Prime Video. And she's currently working on her second documentary, which will focus on the history of Botox. That is an amazing and long-established career. Joan, welcome so much to the podcast. Thank you so much. Very excited to have you here. Um, The first thing I wanted to ask you was, you've obviously been covering plastic surgery for a number of years. Uh, Why did you feel that you could tell something different uh, in this documentary that maybe hasn't been told previously through your reporting or through other uh, focuses on documentaries on plastic surgery? I was, as you said, I, I covered uh, plastic surgery for 25 years, and I and I think about the last 10 years, I was um, feeling that uh, there was a change in um, the audience. The audience were they were reading less. The stories had to be shorter. Um, pictures um, became even more important. Um, telling the story in a series of pictures. Um, started popping up in magazines, and I, you know, it's kind of like I saw the handwriting on the wall, and I wanted to be modern. I wanted to keep up with the audience, and uh, and I think that the subject that I was covering um, left itself open, uh, you know, to uh, film, and I, I was becoming more and more interested in documentaries and watching them more, and uh, I was lucky enough to. Um, audit a class at the School of Visual Arts. Uh, it was a master's degree program and it was, it was one particular class they had every Thursday night, uh, where, uh, the, where famous documentarians came and just talked about their work. And I asked to audit one class I was in particular interested in, one, one, uh, filmmaker and, I went to that, and then they started asking me to come back every week. I mean, I didn't even ask for that. And they said, well, would you like to come next week? And so, oh, okay, sure. And so um, they were all much younger people, and uh, nobody talked to me. In the, in the whole season, I went to the School of Visual Arts. Not one student in the class ever talked to me. <laughs> I was a little hurtful, but anyway, I trudged down there was in the evenings, and I, you know, rain, snow, whatever, I was mm-hmm. there, and and I found that I would go up and afterwards, and I would talk to some of the filmmakers, and I had a lot in common with them, um, and I I started feeling like part of their community. And, uh, you know, when you're as old as I am, you know, you, you bring a lot of network friendships and whatnot. And you have, when they talk about certain subjects, you, you have something to add to it. And so, um, little by little, I kind of worked myself. I began to think of myself as a filmmaker. <laughs> and then I had a lot of different ideas and I tried one or two and they didn't work. And, uh, uh, I, you know, as a, as a journalist, you you you're asked often to be in other people's movies. So I was a talking head in in other documentaries, mm. and that way I met some producers and whatnot. And so you know, I sort of built up my rolodex of people that I knew that I right. could go to and ask uh, advice from and whatnot. So, but I still didn't have the right film. 
And I was talking to um, my cousin, um, Bill Schiff, who um, worked for David Letterman. He was he wrote the monologues, or he was with Letterman for like 24 years, uh, writing for David. And uh, I was talking with Bill and his wife, who was a stand-up comedian. And, um, and I was, you know, trying to tell them stories that would interest them. And I said, you know, I've written this book about plastic surgery. And the most interesting fact in it is that the only people who are honest about their surgery are comedians. Right. <laughs> and, and Bill knew I wanted to make a film and he knew I had been, you know, kind of failing. <laughs> and he said, well, John, that's your movie. I said, "Oh my God! Oh, you're, oh, you're right." And after, after we had dinner or whatever, when social evening, I went to my t- uh, computer and I sat down, and it was almost as if you know how you, you people talk about being at the Ouija board when things mm-hmm. just come out. <laughs> and I just suddenly, you know, I was typing titles because as a writer, I always try to have a title before I start a story, so mm-hmm. I kind of get in the mood. And and it came out, Take My Nose, Please. It's which perfect. Is the, which is, the, you know, the most famous, the most famous um, uh, punchline in American comedy is Take My Wife, Please. My Wife, Please, right. <laughs> right. Take My Wife, Please. So I wrote Take My Nose, Please, and it was a little, you know, play on words. And uh, I thought, oh, that's a good title. <laughs> yeah, and, and then, then it, I said, it's... well, I have to make a movie now. <laughs> and you may... I talked to people who were, I, of course, I immediately made Bill and and um, Adrian, his wife, executive producers. <laughs> and, um, they, uh, Adrian said to me, oh, you know, Julie Halston just had a facelift, and she's doing her whole cabaret act about it. I said, "Oh my God, that's fabulous!" <laughs> and so uh, I knew Julie because I had interviewed her years before mm-hmm. for a story, and um, and uh, I uh, got her to let me film her cabaret act, and I was off and running. <laughs> so what you know, it seemed to kind of organically happen pretty easily, and obviously you're very versed in the subject of plastic surgery. What type of challenges did you face being a first-time filmmaker? You were a journalist, well, so obviously you knew how to investigate things. So well, was it, it finding more subjects? It was the most insane film ever to make for your first movie, That I can tell you that, because... Uh, you know, uh, now I had all these advisors and the people I'd met on, you know, on, in, on the road to making a movie. And one of them said to me, uh, you know, you have to have some strong um, characters um, to, that the audience can relate to. And mm-hmm. you can't use people who have had surgery already you have to have people who are thinking about it right you have to follow that journey and follow them and where wherever it leads even if they change their mind if they have a bad result uh whatever happens you have to just follow it and you can't predict what this how the story will end mm-hmm. so though i knew a lot of people who had already had surgery and you you know we we do uh, feature them in the film 
uh, I had to find two lead characters. Well, that's it, needle in a haystack. <laughs> that was the most difficult thing. And so I started and how did you go about doing that? Clubs. Well, I went, started going to comedy clubs, and the first comedy club I went to um, was Ladies' Night at, at Caroline's. And sure enough, um, one of the uh, performers did the whole act about her nose. I said, oh, I'm in, you know, no problem. <laughs> I, I meet her afterwards because uh, she was signing autographs or something in the lobby. And I said, I'm making a movie called Take My Nose, Please. And I think that, you know, you sound like you'd be perfect. And she said, oh, I've always wanted my nose done. I said, well, that could be arranged. And she said, let me think about it. And I, she thought about it. And over the weekend, and she called me afterwards and she said, I've thought about it, and I don't want my first movie to be about my nose, so mm. I have to say no. And then I realized I was in for a long haul. <laughs> right. So how long and did it take you to zero in on? It took, um, it took um, several months, but uh, I found um, Emily. Um, I went. I. I went on the website of the Upright Citizens Brigade. I thought mm-hmm. I have to stop going to comedy clubs because I'm drinking too many Coca-Colas <laughs> and I'm got, not getting any place. And so I went on the website of the um, Upright Citizens Brigade, you know, which is a comedy school right. for improv. And uh, it was started by Amy Poehler. And... They at that time they arranged their website with all their alumni alphabetically, with a little picture and a little bio, and so I, I you know it's like two hundred little headshots. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I started with A, and there popped out at me Emily Askin. And Emily Askin, it was very interesting in the bio, a very short bio, and she said, um, um, I'm an expert on beauty. <laughs> so that, that made me curious. And uh, she was very pretty and uh, kind of an appealing face. And when I looked her up on Google, she had an all-girl improv group, which was kind of quite unusual. Mm-hmm. And I called her up, and she lived in Pittsburgh, and she had a, a hair salon because, you know, comedians all have a job on the side. So, of course. <laughs> so I asked her, I said the same thing, I'm, I'm making a movie called Take My Nose, Please. And she said, oh, my God, I've always worn my nose done. And I said, well, you don't look like you need it in your mm-hmm. the photo. She said, oh, well, I, I, I do need it, and or I want it. And anyway, I brought her and the whole troupe, as many of the girls as she could get together. I literally arranged for them to come to New York, which was uh, very daring of me <laughs> uh, financially. <laughs> and um, I brought them to New York, and uh, some of them lived and worked here, and she lived in Pittsburgh, and she flew in. And anyway, um, we I filmed them that day uh, doing just talking about their body issues. I mean, I, I didn't concentrate on noses or anything. But anyway, uh, it led to Emily having a nose job. And, uh, and then 
I still felt that I needed, that it wasn't strong enough, just one person, I needed somebody else, and something just fell into my lap, and that was um, Jackie Hoffman was um, preparing to open on Broadway in uh, on the town, and she did an interview in the Wall Street Journal, and in the interview, she said, I regret not taking the nose job and the facelift that uh, that my mother, not, no, excuse me, she said, I regret not taking the nose job my mother offered me when I was 16, and as long as I'm, ha- I'm at it, I wouldn't mind a facelift. <laughs> so, so I called her. I mean, I reached her, you know, mm-hmm. you're a journalist, you figure out how to get, get to people, and I did, and she answered me in about 10 minutes and said, I want to talk to you, and we talked then eventually, uh, as you saw in the movie. I don't want to give the movie away, but... Right. Um, anyway, um, then Jackie Hoffman, and it's so funny because these two women turned out to be exemplars. I mean, you know, people ask me, uh, did you write the film? I said, it's a documentary. You don't write the film, <laughs> you know. I said, these people just said what need to be said at every right moment and I, it was just a miracle and yeah they're they're I really great and they're very compelling and their personalities are perfect for i for what right. story I mean, that they, was being told they feel the sh- they, you know they both both of them in their own way uh people related to them and it was just it it was what i was told i needed and that is charismatic people who can uh, bring the audience in and of course I knew Joan Rivers personally not that well but I had interviewed her uh, mm-hmm. many times and uh, and I many times went down to the ca- the cabaret where she used to p- perform her act and I went down to see her and I said I'm making a movie called Take My Nose Please and she said oh I love that title I have to be in it <laughs> and <laughs> And so I said, well, you know, let's try and set it up. But it's so crazy. Joan, it was so hard to set up appointments with Joan because she had a book coming out and she had uh, engagements and whatnot. And I didn't press hard enough. And P.S., two months later, she died. Oh, that's so unfortunate. And and then I I thought it was interesting. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. But she, well, you notice she's in the movie. How is she in the movie? She, I had done a a profile of her all about her plastic surgery. I'm the only one who's ever done a story that she just talked about her plastic surgery and she gave her dermatologist and plastic surgeon permission to talk to me and read from their operative notes. So it's a fantastic uh, um, discussion of everything that she had and it was a very honest story. I did not realize that I had tape recordings of my interview with her for that story. She had given me a one-hour interview, and I had saved the tapes. And while we're editing the film, is this a miracle? While we're editing the film, I'm I'm looking for something on the bookshelf, and I said, oh, my God, here are the Joan Rivers tapes. Wow. And so we used the voiceover of the tapes, and we had animation in the film, mm-hmm. and the animator had me describe the scene, 
and then the, and then animated the scene and we had you you remember that at the Joan River section we had of course we um pulled some archival foot, footage right. of her performing but also we had a little scene with the tape rolling and you could just see the tape with the name on it, Joan Rivers and the date, mm-hmm. and then the, the two of us in animation above it, in conversing. In yeah, animation. it worked really well. Yes, and so animation is a wonderful adjunct uh, to telling stories, especially when certain people can't show up. <laughs> so, um, so it was, uh, it was, you know, just amazing and just so surprising you know and these are the things that you don't even you can't possibly plan plan for right right so tell us about the next project that you're working on it's going to be the history of botox um well it's actually going to be the history of botulinum toxin which is the the major ingredient in botox and okay the other uh injectables that are similar uh, they, it, it, they're basically all botulinum toxin, and the toxin is as old as the as life on Earth because it's a bacteria that's in the in the ground, and uh, it has a very long history and a very interesting history. And I I can't reveal some of the things, but it, it has a, uh, a rather scary history, and and. And then it was discovered that it could cure wrinkles by by accident, and that's a wonderful, fascinating story about how it was discovered that it might help. Uh, it was being researched for medical uses, and it is uh, uh, it's it's a um, major um, it's a miracle drug now of the 21st century. It's, uh, being used to treat so many neurological conditions. It's and doesn't not, it help with migraines too? Yes, it has. It, uh, migraines is one of the yeah. approved one of the approved uses of it. But it's being researched for all kinds of uh, conditions that are not yet approved, but it, it's very promising. And um, so it just has a fantastically interesting story. And. Um, I I know all parts of the story, and I mm-hmm. uh, my scientific advisor was the assistant to the man who actually um, made the made the uh, formula Discovery. that became oh, Botox. Yeah. Well, that's so, great. We're going to be very excited yeah. to see Nobody that. Nobody has a better team than I have on this. <laughs> there cannot be a better team for this than I have assembled. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine you'd be perfect to tell this right. story. Um, so what advice, before we let you go, would you give to first-time filmmakers having um, gone through the process and now starting on your second project? Uh, there's really only one. I mean, of course you have to, um, you know, I came in from journalism. I mean, you have to be able to tell a story. So I'm assuming that people are, who are trying to make it, just because it's your first movie doesn't mean you haven't done anything in your life. So, I mean, mm-hmm. people come in in various ways, just as you are coming in from uh, publicity. But, right. you know, people are coming in and vary either from a life experience or whatever it is. Um, so you just assume some level of expertise in, in the subject, but that's not good enough. 
I mean, the, the subject takes care of itself if you know what you're doing. It's raising money is the problem. I mean, all filmmakers have the same problem. <laughs> that, that I, I am right, film? I am very aware money? of that right now. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, and there are hundreds of ways. Um, people, I found, I, I was at a tremendous disadvantage because people, um, even people who believe in plastic surgery personally, uh, feel that it's, uh, it's a somehow shameful subject. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there were, there, there were experienced documentary backers who, who, um, saw my sizzle reel and, uh, saw the team I had assembled and my experience and thought it was very worthy. And they did not want to be connected to the film because it was plastic surgery <laughs> and that they, somebody might, um, put two and two together and figure out that they had their nose done. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so there's a tremendous prejudice that has to be overcome, and I still feel that on the uh, the Botox film, um, where there's a um, Botox is proving to be a, a major mer- miracle in medicine, and still... I doubt that I can get a foundation to back me. But I have, um, I've been very lucky. I was introduced to, uh, a major production company called the Documentary Group, um, that was founded by, um, Peter Jennings, the ABC mm-hmm. anchor who died, unfortunately, early in life. And, uh, he had started this company and they just make documentaries. And they hook up with um, independent filmmakers every once in a while. They make their own films. But if they see something interesting, they will also co-produce. And they are going to executive produce my film and help me raise money. So, well, miracle. you have to be persistent, right? Yeah, well, you, you have to stick with it. Uh, every time you think it's not going to happen, I can't make it happen, what am I doing this for? Uh, why don't I just quit? Um, you just have to figure out a way around it or stick with it, and you have to keep going out and meeting new people and talking about it. That's that's all I can say, you know. It's not, it's right. not no, giving up. That's great <laughs> advice, and we thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and, of course, um, for being a member of New York Women in Film and Television. Well, I went to a lot of good good lectures that they put on, and they, they really helped me feel like I was part of the community. And I learned a lot when I went to uh, the uh, you know the panels that they put on. So uh, I'm very proud to be in that group. Well, we are proud to have you. Thank you so much, and great job with Take My Nose, Please. And we're looking forward to seeing your next film very soon. Thanks, Janine. Hi, everybody. This is Leah Kearney of the Women Crush Wednesdays podcast team, and I am so pleased to be speaking today with a remarkable writer, director, and fellow NYWIFT member, Richa Rudola. Uh, I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit about her and her really impressive 
work. She's an award-winning NYC-based filmmaker. Uh, her short film, her first short film, Fresh Blood, won seven awards across 27 film festivals and was eventually picked up for distribution by Shorts TV India. She's uh, directed a short film based on an original poem sponsored by the 2019 Visible Poetry Project. And she just completed her second short film, The Seal, which received the 2019 Future of Film is Female grant. Congratulations. Um, she's also been shortlisted for Oscar qualifying festivals for her scripts like Holly Shorts in Nashville. And she's a very strong proponent for increasing diversity in storytelling and serves as the vice president of development for NYC Women Filmmakers. Uh, Richa, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Leah, thank you for having me. It's so nice to be, you know, uh, working with NYRIFT, and I, I really love the organization, and it's really nice to be on this podcast. Thank you so much for that generous introduction as well. Uh, you're, you're so welcome. So um, I just want to jump in by asking how you made the leap to filmmaking, because I understand that films weren't a big part of your childhood, but that you discovered independent film and fell in love with the medium when you came to the U.S. to pursue it. Was it a, a graduate degree in statistics? That's right. Uh, I so, think yeah. very organically. I mean, I never would have thought when I was growing up in India that uh, I would call myself a filmmaker. And it actually took me a few years to even think of myself as a filmmaker. But it was a, mm. you know, I've been in the U.S. now for 14 years, and I came to study, you know, statistics. It was a graduate uh, program, and it was my first time leaving India, first time coming to the U.S., and uh, growing up, I just didn't care for films much. It was not a very big part of my life because going to the films was expensive, especially in the theaters. And uh, the films that I saw around me were not, I mean, I, I didn't find them intellectually stimulating. Most of them I didn't find to be very interesting or challenging. So I just didn't, didn't care for films that much. Um, and I think part of it was because I hadn't been exposed to many different types of films at that time. So... At UVA, the graduate school that I went to um, in Virginia, um, I joined uh, a weekly movie club just as therapy uh, for my statistics program, which was quite rigorous sometimes. And uh, for the first time, I think I got a chance to watch independent films and foreign films, uh, so many of them in a very sort of short period of time. And I really mm -hmm. loved it. Um, and I didn't think too much of it except that, oh, there are some films that I actually really like. Um, and I would go week after week, and I would try not to miss them, even though sometimes it's, you know, it's hard to take time away from a busy schedule, but I just got so much enjoyment out of it. And then mm -hmm. when I moved to New York in 2007, you know, for, for a job that I got thanks to my statistics degree, it ended up being such a good thing. I was choosing between, um, like, you know, Richmond, Virginia, a job there and a job in New York. I'm glad I chose this job just because <laughs> it was in New York City, and um, the, just, uh, I was exposed to so many more independent foreign films just from being here and people that were interested in that. And I would sometimes just go to like the film forum or the quad, uh, or mm -hmm. the IFC center, which is one of my favorites. And I would just, you know, watch films after work, um, one or two at a time. And I wouldn't know much about them. I would just walk in and I just do like a marathon evening of watching films. And I just, I loved it. So wow. I realized that I was interested in how films were written. And I realized that the reason I used to feel insult insulted by films was sometimes when it, they 
they felt like they were insulting my intelligence uh, sometimes when mm. they were not very well written. So then I just decided to pursue screenwriting. Um, I studied through various different schools and mediums on the side um, because I was on an H-1B visa, so I couldn't have done that full-time, so I was doing it like on nights and weekends. Mm. And then I just kind of made the transition to making films also on nights and weekends. And it's and now I actually think of myself as a filmmaker. Uh, so it's been quite a journey, and one I never wow. would have imagined for myself. Wow. Wow, that's that's amazing. Was there um, was there one particular movie or a film that you saw that really, uh, you know, was pivotal to you, or, yeah, or a I filmmaker think, director? Yeah. So I think three films come to mind. Two of them are uh, by Pedro Almodovar, who continues to be mm. um, just one of my favorite directors um, for many reasons. But I think the very first film I saw at that movie club actually was. It was either Talk to Her or it was uh, uh, All About My Mother by him. And I just mm-hmm. loved both of the films so much. And then I also got to see the Italian film um, Nuovo Cinema Paradiso, uh, which I mm-hmm. also loved so much. Um, so those are the first three that I remember that left a big impression on me. Um, mm. Yeah. And now I'm also curious what uh, what shaped your approach to filmmaking because I, I read that you, you you like to view the world with a, a sociological lens and tell tales of courage and, and certainly I've had the pleasure of getting to see your two short films um, uh, one of which is available uh, to be seen online, correct? Um, your um, first so film Fresh Blood? Uh, that's actually, I want to make it available online I've just been dragging ah. my feet on it I'm hoping to do that <laughs> this summer uh, but it's okay. available to watch like in India just through the distributor uh, they have uh-huh. a pretty wide network, but yeah, not online yet. Uh, maybe oh, okay. maybe for the subscribers in India, they can log into their portal and watch, but not sort of on gotcha. Vimeo or YouTube, but I'm considering doing that. Gotcha. Well, sorry, listeners. I have had a very <laughs> privileged sneak preview of her films. You don't, you won't get to see them just yet, but I'm sure you will be seeing them soon because they, they are award-winning and they're brilliant. But um uh, but they do tackle, a, you know, challenging subject matter. The the first one um, deals with uh, a young girl that's been sold into sex trafficking, and the second one deals is a psychological thriller about a, a woman's journey healing from trauma. And um, and they're both about courageous women making bold choices. And I, I'm just curious how that shapes your your approach to filmmaking. That's a or really what good drew you to those stories. Yeah, and you know, I, I realized this actually recently. I was speaking to my writing mentor who actually pointed out some of the things that she sees in my work because I didn't set out to write a story about a girl who gets sex trafficked with fresh blood. What happened was I was trying to, um, I, I, I just watched this really beautiful film by Jim Jarmusch called Only Lovers Left Alive. Um, and it, it was about, you know, vampires. And, it, um, and I realized I've only ever seen, you know, white vampires. I've never actually seen brown vampires ever. Mm. So I thought, let me try to write a day in the life of a brown vampire. And I ended up writing about the premise being in New York City because, you know, that's a city I know very well and I love the city. So I started writing that. And what came out was um, this. It actually, I realized it was a girl's story, but it just started out through the vampire's sort of eyes. Mm. And the girl, obviously, as you mentioned, has been sex trafficked here. And, uh, you know, she is really sort of the fresh blood uh, to, you know, uh, 
society, to the people that prey on her, and to some extent even to the vampire who is actually looking for fresh blood for survival. So um, again, I, that was not something I had in, uh, intended to write. And then with this story of the seal, uh, my second film that I recently completed, um, if anything, honestly, I was just doing a bunch of free writing to just write out what was coming out organically. And I'm finding that some of these stories are actually finding me. I'm not choosing to write them. They're coming out of me, and they're probably mm -hmm. informed by my experience of growing up as a girl and a young woman in India. And, um, you know, I haven't experienced a lot of the horrors that I write about personally, but I have observed uh, a lot of them. I've experienced some of it, but I've mostly through observation, through people I know, or just generally in the society that I have grown up in, you know, women have not enjoyed a very strong position. Um, mm. And I've seen some of that even in sort of close family sort of environments. Um, so it, it has left a deep impact on me, and one that I would not even think of, you know, consciously. And it's other people who have looked at my work and pointed out themes and um, trajectories that then I realized, oh, that's right. I think I am, I think I am writing about this, but I wasn't choosing to do it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. so, so that was something, I think that's just organically coming out. And I'm, I'm lucky in a way that I'm, at least I'm getting the opportunity to be a writer director uh, where I am trying to honor the stories that are coming out of me. Uh, I would love to also keep directing other people's works where you know, it's, it's something that resonates with me. But for now, as, as long as I'm writing, directing, I think the stories that are coming out end up being what I know. Um, and mm -hmm. it's taking on these shapes and forms of, you know, immigrant experiences, because that is something I've done. I spent 20 years of my life in India. Now I've spent, you know, 14 years in the U.S. So mm. I've lived in sort of both places. What have they left behind? How can that uh, still connect to them, whether that haunts them? Um, and and how that informs how they currently are. Yeah. Well, just dovetailing on on that, you know, you mentioned spending your life in both countries. You actually filmed the seal in both countries. It's it's shot both in the U.S. and in and in India. I'm just curious. Did um, did you how how did that work? Did you travel back and forth and have different teams in both places? Yeah, so I, I did have two teams, but I have to say that, you know, uh, when I started to think of making the seal, that was like a year, year and a half ago, when I knew seriously that I was going to make the film, um, I, you know, it's a short film, and it's, it's not that common for shorts to be made, you know, to be filmed in different countries. I was aware of that, and we didn't have like a massive budget, which of course is, uh, you know, has to be a consideration as well. Um, mm -hmm. I have to applaud not just the amazing team that worked with me on the seal, but also, you know, a couple of really amazing advisors that gave me very good feedback. And they said, you know, typically it is hard to, um, to, to shoot in multiple countries because you obviously have to consider, you know, the cost, crew flying there, things like that. However, in this particular story, it just kind of lent itself to having almost two separate productions because all the childhood stuff was happening in India and mm -hmm. actors didn't really need to, the, the actors were not shared between locations, right? They were almost, the child right. is in India um, and the father is in India and then the adult never ends up, we don't show her in India, she's always here 
uh, and then the other central one or two characters are also here in the U.S. So based on a couple advisors, you know, their, their word, and they said, you know, you might just be able to pull it off. And I have to applaud uh, Vaishnavi Sundar, my India producer, and Naomi McDougall-Jones, who is also a NIVIS member. She's, a, she's the executive producer on the film, and Jess Weiss, my U.S. producer. You know, we got together, and Maria Fajardo, who was also a co-producer on the film. These amazing women, by the way. My producing team is all women, all amazing women. Mm-hmm. We got together, and we, we talked about it. We're like, do you, do you think it's possible? And then everyone agreed, yes, we can actually probably pull this off. So it came to be that way, and then it was just me who was the common connection between the two productions. So we shot in uh, New York um, Labor Day weekend last year, and then there was a, about a week's worth of break, and then I flew myself to India, and then my amazing producer, Vaishnavi, had already set up so many things there. We had taken care mm-hmm. of a lot of casting beforehand by me just being remote. Uh, so Vaishnavi played a very big part, and there were a lot of Skype discussions. Um, I you know, bet. Yeah, lots of them, and we have an amazing uh, team of two DPs. We have um, my DP here in the U.S., Caroline Marie Kostaki, and then my DP in India, Anshu. They're both amazing women, and they were in touch as well to make sure that, you know, the vision was going to translate. Uh, so there was just a lot of amazing coordination uh, between mm-hmm. all of these amazing filmmakers, and that's basically how I pulled it off. So it really would not have been possible otherwise. Wow. Well, it feel. I mean, it feels very seamless in the film itself, and it 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 makes. I think it's really impressive. Thank you. That, yeah, Thank that you were able to do that. As a side note, we had um, Naomi McDougall Jones on on the podcast a few weeks. That's back, right, so. and I love that uh, podcast. That was so great. Yeah, yeah. Talking about uh, her feature film, Bite Me. So if uh, if you haven't, if listeners, if you haven't heard that one, go back in the archives and check it out. It's a great interview. Um, along with uh, her executive producer on that film, Joanne Zippel. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I, I just wanted to ask you about your, um, your work as an advocate for gender parity, for diversity of storytelling. Are there, are there things, I mean, you, your cast and crew on The Seal is incredibly diverse, and I'm just curious if there are things that you think we can be doing both as filmmakers and, and as consumers of entertainment to, to increase opportunities that's a great question. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's something I've started to think about more um, the more I'm making work. So when I made my first film, that was not as top of mind for me because I was dealing with so many other um, issues of, you know, trying to get that inner confidence that I can actually yeah. make a film, you know. And I have a lot of issues with confidence. So, like, that, so that, those were some different, like, battles and demons to fight, which, you know, it, you know, it c- continues to be a journey, but... Uh, I felt like with this film <laughs> and this I can other, relate. You know, right? Like, it's just, maybe it's, it's a woman thing. I don't know. But it's certainly something that's true for me. And um, so this year, in the last year, I've gotten to direct two, two films, um, my own film and then the poetry film. And in both of them, um, you know, I've been trying to, so, so there's two co- components to your question. One is who are, you know, who are the actors, that the story is written for, right? Can we think of diversity in that to the extent that it serves the story? Um, you know, so it's always encouraged. But then there are certain stories, depending on the stories you're telling, that will lend themselves better to diversity versus others. However, mm-hmm. I think when it comes to the behind-the-camera um, crew and team, I think that's where it must be always considered because, mm. you know, th- 
irrespective of the story you're trying to tell, right? You have to honor the story you're trying to tell. And maybe the story is of a straight white man, and that's that's okay. It's that there's no there's room for everyone's stories, right? So we shouldn't automatically assume that in this day and age where there's a lot of talk of diversity that stories of straight white men is, is not okay. I mean, there's stories for everybody, but of course we should have more of more diverse stories out there. But mm -hmm. if you keep that aside, the behind the camera. Uh, teams, I think that's where we can do more work to make sure that we are um, getting the teams on board as well um, that that are as diverse as, as we actually see in our lives. So I'm very proud that um, that you know the team that made the seal and my poetry film it's incredibly diverse, and it, and I find that if you just uh, make a decision that this is something I'm going to do in the future or I'm going to be more mindful of it in the future. Just mm. that awareness. Just that can help. And the fact that, you know, maybe you don't know the right people. So then hire one or two department heads. Just just make that one hiring decision that can then lend itself. So part of the really diverse crew on my on my film The Seal is partly because my producer Jess Weiss brought a lot of them on board. So I, you know, so if, as long as you're making those department head decisions, they can, they can carry that work forward as well, you know? Mm. So, so mm -hmm. I think that is very helpful. And I think that just, from, I'm more of a self-select sample in that any stories that I tell in front of the camera, they will end up being diverse. I know that. So I mm. worry more about behind the camera. But hopefully there are other filmmakers out there that are also thinking of the, you know, in front of the camera stories that, that there is some some angle of diversity there as well. That's su that's such great practical advice. I mean, it's it's and yeah, I um I, I just recall uh, seeing I don't know if it was the Hollywood Reporter or Variety, and it was an interview with Jodie Foster, and she was she was talking about how very similarly, like how how important when you're crewing up, how important it is to. Um, you know, to to try and fill those positions, or like you said, maybe a cup at least the department heads with with a diverse team, and how for so long she she was kind of apologizing because she, she she didn't it didn't occur to her that that was something she was in control of that that was something she could actually be proactively doing. And and I think you're right. I think we can be mindful of that, regardless of what the story on screen is, to to make sure that our crews are. Um, well represented on exactly. screen and think, behind the screen. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, you know, uh, I have not made a pact that I will only work with women. It's not like that. I just want to work with as many diverse people as possible. That also means sometimes okay. you work with somebody for the first time because you're also trying to expand your roster. You also want to be able to, you know, not be pigeonholed and have many different working relationships because this is such a relationship uh, driven industry. You know, I've worked with some amazing yeah. uh, men on my cruise that I would want to work with again, you know, so it's not yeah. that it's just that. It's just that as long as we are mindful, um, mm -hmm. and then you also have to find the best fit. You also have to, they also have to be available. So all of these things, as you know, right, <laughs> going to yeah. the making of a film. It's not as simplistic as, oh, this is what I want. Let's go after it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're almost out of time, but I just I have to ask you a couple quick questions. Um, one, you're working currently on a feature, correct? And that has has recently won uh, or been accepted into a couple of competitive writing residencies this summer. So congratulations. Um, Thank you. Uh, yeah. And then I thought because 
I, you know, knowing that your, your first short was in 27 different festivals, knowing that you've been submitting for residencies, you're someone who is, who has a lot of experience with, uh, submitting and both being accepted and I'm sure like all of us being rejected and I'm just curious if you have um, or you know not getting whatever grant or application or festival you've submitted to so I was just curious for our listeners who you know if you have any advice for them about um, pitching or applying for things and and um, if there's any practical tips uh, yeah. that you've learned along the way and also how to keep your spirits up when you don't get get those awards yeah, or get those acceptance? That is such a valid question for all, for not just artists, for all people everywhere because life is not going to go, uh, you know, according to plan or according <laughs> yeah. to expectation, right? And I can right. tell you, um, I've had so many rejections. In fact, you're catching me at a good time because in the <laughs> next two, three days, uh, I will start hearing from festivals on the mm. field. So I've submitted to a bunch, right, because we just completed the film like a, two months ago. So I've submitted to a bunch. I'll start hearing soon. And I am prepared to be rejected by 80, 90, maybe 100% of them. I'm mentally prepared. <laughs> and, and, and I've been trying to actually, you know, steal myself. But at the same time, I've been asking myself, would you really be crushed? Because with my first film, rejections were quite crushing often because then, you've, you know, you, you're looking for that validation from being a, sort of new to the, to the craft and to the industry so you are looking for that validation. And I'm finding mm-hmm. that every time you make something, uh, even if you just make, make it or you write something and you don't intend to show to anybody, uh, it's important to ask yourself the question, why did I do this or why am I doing this, even knowing that it's not complete yet perhaps. Like that's certainly happening with my feature screenplay. I have no idea where the story is going, but I'm going to take it. And I'm very grateful mm-hmm. to the residencies for giving me the time uh, and saying, mm-hmm. you know, we see something in what you are trying to do, so here. Here's some means to do it. Awesome. Thank you so much. But with the mm. film festivals in particular, it's a very unregulated industry, um, and you don't know how decisions are made. You hear all kinds mm-hmm. of stories. You trust that it's being made well, but it's possible that, you know, they, they don't even look at your stuff. It's always possible. So I have to say that I have been telling myself that I am so proud of having made the seal because it was there were I had one or two very important reasons for making it and I feel like I I realized those those reasons and it was such a personal journey of healing uh, just by making the film and having these amazing set of filmmakers that made the film with me that I honestly feel like I have like one so to speak and I pat myself on the back just about how proud I feel of the film and if festivals don't like it or they're not able to accept it for whatever reason, I will hopefully continue to feel this way and I mm. have mentally already moved on to my feature. So I feel mm. like it's also good to have at least one other thing that you can, uh, you know, that all of your eggs are not in one basket. You have at least yeah. one or two other things to distract you artistically, but also you need to, if you don't have it, then find a thing or a person that uh, doesn't care about what's going on in this world. For me, that person is my husband, uh, who, you know, no matter what, he, he thinks the sun shines out of, you know, some, some dark parts, you know, like, he, he, just, he, he is the reason I'm able to stay sane and, and take risks, because then if they don't work out, you know, that's okay. We you, you still have each other or you have this special thing in your life uh, that mm. is not the end-all, be-all. So 
hopefully that helps. But it's certainly something I've been telling myself because who knows, this weekend when I hear from two festivals, hopefully I'll still be in the same mindset, Leah. I trust that I will, but you never know. Yeah, well, you know, you can you can go back and listen to the the podcast and, and <laughs> be inspired yeah. by your own words. Um, <laughs> That's a great strategy. I will do that. <laughs> well, it, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. I just um, want to wrap up by letting people know where they can find where they can follow you on social media and where they can find out more about you and your work. Absolutely. So my website is richardrodola.com. Uh, and my film, my latest film's website, which are listed on my website, are thesealfilm.com and freshbloodfilm.com. And, you know, or it's easier to just go to my website, richardredola.com, and, you know, I'll be posting more, more things on there as they develop. And really, more than anything, Leah, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, like, talk about myself at this point in time. Like, you know, it's almost like a self-awareness check-in. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> oh, well, we're so, it's, it's been truly my pleasure. And, and thank you for sharing all of your insights with all of our, our listeners and for, for joining us on Women Crush Wednesdays. Sounds awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, great. And we're back. Um, well, thanks for, for doing that interview, Jean. That sounded really interesting. I'm glad You're welcome. it came through. Yeah. And to Leah for that wonderful interview with uh, Richard Rodello. And um, I hope that uh, everybody enjoys it and checks these films out. So, um, Janine, so tell us, what are you working on these days? You're, uh, you, you transitioned from doing publicity into another field. So let us yeah, I, about. I, well, I feel the transition is still going on, but yes, I've, I'm kind of freelancing, doing some entertainment strategy, uh, publicity, production stuff, but I'm working on putting together my very first documentary. Um, wow. Kind of a crazy thing, but, you know, wanting to get into the production field. And um, six years ago, I was diagnosed with this little-known inner ear disorder called Meniere's disease. And it, um, without getting into too much detail, it basically debilitates you with very bad bouts of vertigo. So if you've ever been really drunk and you're trying to sleep at night and the room is spinning, it's basically that, and you get nauseous and you throw up, but without wow. the fun effect, like benefits of having right. drunk all night. <laughs> um, right. But it also causes continuous tinnitus, which is ringing in the ear or roaring. A lot of people, um, it affects them in different ways. Uh, ear pressure and intermittent and then eventual hearing loss. So there's um, some people out there in entertainment who have been uh, very public about their condition, including Christian Chenoweth, the singer Ryan Adams, and also um, music icon Huey Lewis, who I grew up with. And um, Mr. Lewis has graciously agreed to appear in the documentary. So right now I'm in the developmental stage, which is, you know, doing... Huh? Amazing. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. See, my hearing. I didn't hear what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's exciting and terrifying all at the same time. And yeah. I'm still kind of putting my subjects together and doing research. And right now is the, you know, awful experience of trying to raise money 
you know, funding is the biggest thing, especially for independent uh, productions like this. And mm-hmm. having been, you know, more active in NYWIFT and listening to people and interviewing people that have done these projects, that always seems to be the hardest part is to um, get money because you find that in order to apply for financial grants, you need to spend money to make a work sample and you have to show them some products. So to ask for money, you have to spend money. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I've been great and I'm partnering with a lot of different hearing organizations and medical doctors trying to get the word out. And if anybody's interested in hearing more, they could go to my website, Second Chapter Productions, which is the number two ND, as in second, chapterproductions.com. And the name of the film is The Ears of Men Years, which is spelled M-E-N-I-E-R-E apostrophe S. So that's, that's what's been keeping me busy. What about you? Wow, that's amazing. Well, you know, uh, I look forward to hearing more about it because that sounds like it's something that really needs to be talked more about. There's not a lot of information out there, so I'm glad that you're, that you're working on that. I'm sure you're going to get a lot of support from people. Yeah, that are when, once I'm that. a little further down the line, I definitely would love to, um, you know, possibly have a little segment in the podcast just to give some information to other independent filmmakers out there, things that I've learned. But yeah. I, I don't think I'm ready for that just yet, but I will be right. soon. And I, I definitely want to um, share my experience because it just in talking to other people who's been through the process at networking events and NYWIFT events has been so helpful to me to learn, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So um, I'm sure yeah. in, in another month or two, I'll have a lot of of good um, key points to share with everyone. And also our blog. Don't forget we could do like a nice little she said, she said uh, contribution to our blog. So that would be cool. That's sure. right. I should do that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. They'll give me something else to, on my to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and, and that reminds me of, I think the, I, I just drafted a blog post for our blog. I think it's going up on Thursday um, based on a project that our fellow NYWIFT member, uh, Gabrielle Torello, is working on. She uh, oh, great. Was working, yeah, she was working on um, uh, PR for an up or a now inaugural launch of uh, a new uh, children's programming on PBS called Molly of Denali, and it's the first time a, you know, an lead characters of American Indian descent are being represented. So it's pretty interesting. It's very cool that um, it's on PBS, and I think it starts today, today the 15th. Yeah. So it uh, debuts today with uh, some Native American leads as the, as the centerpiece of these characters. So check out our blog post on Thursday for more on that. But definitely, um, if you want to see that for your children, that sounds awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. But I'm uh, so I'm working on on PR for an upcoming film that's coming in September that I had mentioned about the film called Edie. Um, it's a film that was uh, directed and created in Scotland, and it tells the story of an 83 year old widow who is just about to be forced into a retirement home because the husband that she was taking care of for so long passed away, and her daughter thinks she needs to be in a retirement home. So it's very sad for her, and it's even more sadder that she's mourning and also wanting to live her life, and now she's being forced to go and end her life in, like, this retirement home. Sounds 
Mm. Very depressing. So um, instead, she kind of like runs away for a little bit, and <laughs> she goes missing, and she goes to try to fulfill her dream that she wanted to fulfill with her father when she was in her, I think, early 20s, um, where they wanted to climb Mount Suilbin. And oh. she never, yeah, she never climbed the mountain when she was younger. So here she is now finding a way to climb it at the age of 83. Now, the lead is played by Sheila Hancock, who is a very successful and an award-winning um, and back, two-time BAFTA Award-nominated uh, actor actress who played in Bedtime and The Russian Bride. And she had also received a Lifetime Achievement Award from Women in in Film and Television. Um, And she's performed a lot of theater, Shakespeare plays, Romeo and Juliet, Miss on the Night's Dream. She's she's a real, um, you know, a a director's actor, and she's, um, she's pretty amazing. And the fact that she's still getting leads and she's still getting um, all these great films at the age that she's, that she is, and now she was doing her own stunts. So she actually oh, did wow. a lot of <laughs> yeah, she did a lot of the walking and climbing herself. So it's pretty interesting. So that's opening in New York and LA, and a couple of other uh, smaller um, limited theaters in September, September sixth. And we're going to do a, um, a screening with Nyla. So everybody be on the lookout for that. That is coming soon. But, yeah, the, yeah, I definitely um, want to check that out. Yeah. So, all right. Well, tell us, Janine, do you have anything? What are you watching lately? What's new on your chart? Um, well, I just, I, for some reason, did not hear the news that the third season of Handmaid's Tale had premiered on Hulu. I don't know how I missed oh. that because it's one of my favorite shows. So yeah. last week, um, I think there's, you know, maybe five or six episodes up there now. But, um, and so anyway, within two nights, I binged on all the episodes so far. I think there's maybe two nice. or three left in the season. And, wow. um, you know, continue to love that show, but also get scared by it, by the fact of, you know, Things like that don't seem like it's too um, futuristic. Yeah, not so far you know? off. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, an, an important stories to tell, and Elizabeth Moss is um, as amazing as ever as the rest of the cast. So that's uh, one that I was able to catch up with. And then yeah. um, Stranger Things. Uh, mm. also came out with their latest season, which is a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. You know, I grew up uh, in the 80s, so I love all the Easter eggs and the nods uh, that they give to that time frame. You know, this season is good, but I think they're starting to repeat themselves a little bit. Um, so I'm hoping that I think next season is the last uh, that they change things up a little bit and they end it in a really fun way. But it's still it's still a, a really enjoyable show to watch. Um, and mm. tomorrow, pay attention, everybody. It's um, no, actually, by the time this podcast comes out, the Emmy nominations will have been announced. Oh, so okay, um, okay, I'm yeah. really curious to see uh, what gets nominated. And I voted for my favorites, um, which I'll mention. Uh, two really quickly, uh, which I think we've mm-hmm. talked about, Killing Eve and Fleabag, I think, yeah, and yeah, Veep. Yeah. Veep was amazing yeah. this year, and Better Call Saul. So I hope at least all four of those are nominated in some respect. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely um, be on the lookout, and we'll 
we'll talk about that on our next, next episode. Um, yeah. Sure. I have not seen Stranger Things. I've heard about it. I've had heard great things. I should watch it. And I did hear about a lot of the 80s um, Easter eggs that happened and the nods that happened in this uh, newest debut. So I'll, I'll start to watch it at some point. And A Handmaid's Tale, I watched a couple of episodes from the first season and I haven't caught up, like, as my usual. That's that's I mean, I you say this every episode, Margarita. <laughs> on, on every on every show, I know. I start and I don't finish. Game of Thrones, though, I'll say I am now on season seven. So oh, you're almost there. I'm almost there. I mean, it takes me a while because there's so much content, and I'm not really home. And then when I am home, I don't know. They're taking off Friends from Netflix uh, at the end of this year, and yeah. that's my go go to at night when I just. I just want to zone out. So I'm going yeah. to probably watch a lot more when, I, when that happens. But in the meantime, <laughs> I'm watching two new shows that I, I really like. Um, the first one is called In the Dark. That's on Netflix. It's a, a series about um, a blind woman who is, you know, kind of a little bit of an asshole. She's a little, you know, very um, closed, guarded, doesn't let anybody in, doesn't like to talk to anybody, doesn't like people in her world. She just keeps people. Um, and she's, uh, she's even, you know, really has her, her guard up even against her parents. Like she was, I think she was adopted as a child. Um, and I say this because I've only seen, I think about three episodes and, um, so she's very guarded, and uh, when she ha- she just drinks all night. She dr- she drinks every single night, and then she has what's wrong with that? Know, sex with everybody that she sees, like constantly. Mm-hmm. Well, the, what's the, wrong the, with that? There's nothing wrong with that. If you're going to, if you're going to be like at least love life and like be like a, a nice person, if you're getting sex on the regular, I mean, come on, <laughs> like, you should be in a good mood. You should, you should be, but she's miserable and she's um, so you know. At first, I don't really like her character, but then you kind of understand why she is the way she is, and you uh, learn to understand the character a little bit. She goes through it, and then she shows a little bit through. But what happens is that one of her very close friends. Um, is shot and killed and she finds the body but she's blind so the, she calls the police but the police don't believe her because the body they didn't find the body but no body in the alley and they don't believe her because she's blind and so she goes to try to find and investigate the situation on her own and uh, oh. so the yeah so the series is kind of pretty cool because she does a lot of the investigation as a blind person and she gets pretty far she does she does some good stuff but the story gets really convoluted and sort of um chaotic and crazy so yeah, that's where you sort. I sort of get lost a little bit when you get when you're getting a little too dramatic and crazy. Then I'm like, all right, I'll come back to you because <laughs> you're, you're becoming a soap opera, and I just so I'll, I'll I'll come back to you. I think I'm on like the fourth episode. But um, the other new show that I'm just started watching is called The Most Beautiful Thing or uh, 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 Lindo Cosa, which is a Brazilian film about a woman who's kind of spoiled. She has a very wealthy background. Um, she marries someone and uh, her family is very like uppity rich and she uh, finds out that she can't find her husband. Her husband's kind of missing and she goes back to, um, I think she goes to Rio is where her husband was and she was in Sao Paulo. So she goes back to Rio, she can't find her husband um, and then she learns to discover people are talking, she finds things, she, she realizes that he was having an affair, he's still missing, she doesn't know what's going on, and now um, 
she doesn't want to go back home to Sao Paulo with her family. And so they cut her off of money, and she's got to now do her own thing. And so she tries to, she's also a mom, and she leaves her child with her parents, and she tries to start some new business. And this is in the 30s, I want to say, of oh. And he, I think he would like it because the music is fantastic. I mean, it's like Brazilian jazz. It's very like. Oh, that does sound like something yeah. I like. Yes, I mean, it's a beautiful 30s era in Rio and the music, and she she becomes, she befriends another woman who helps her, and um, and it's, it's, you know, it's one of those, like, empowering, you know, women can do it, whatever, you know, and there's a lot of women, men saying no, but they wind up doing it. So I think I'm only on episode four, four of that one. And, too, and where, what platform is that on? And that's also on Netflix, so. Um, oh, okay. Most, most beautiful thing. Definitely check it out there. That's pretty cool. You like the music for sure. I mean, I I put I like kept rewinding just to listen to the soundtrack a little bit more. <laughs> great. Well, I think that's some great recommendations for people to uh, hopefully check out. And yeah. um, you know, as always, always check the NYWIFT website to see what's coming up. Follow us on all social media. Subscribe to this podcast. Tell your friends. Email us. Uh, let us know if you have any suggestions of what you want to hear or if you have anybody that might be interested in being interviewed, let us know. Exactly. Exactly. And on that note, wishing you all a wonderful midsummer. Hope everything is wonderful. You're having some time off with your family. And um, we'll get back to you in August. Yes. Good That's to talk good. to you as always, Margarita. Good talking to you, and uh, if you hear the, that tingle, that was the ice breaking. I'm about to make myself a cocktail. It's that time. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I'm going to join you then. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, and we'll speak to you next month. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.